This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Okay, so let's say you have a client interested in a bondage scenario. Could you share an example of like that kind of call? So what I often do to start off that kind of call as a first time is I say, I want you to close your eyes and deeply imagine that you've been sleeping. You're just waking up from a dream. You go to stretch, but you can't. Slowly it comes back to you. Last night, you pulled up to Mistress Sarah's dungeon. She puts you inside the vacuum bag. It's so tight. You can barely wiggle your fingers. You can almost hear, is it? You're not sure. Heels clicking. And then you feel the presence of your mistress. And I go on from there. Hey y'all and welcome to Unladylike, where we find out what happens when women break the rules. I'm Caroline. I'm Kristen. And that was Sarah Miles. She's the CEO of a BDSM phone sex company called People Exchanging Power, or PEP. And Caroline, you know, our jobs aren't entirely dissimilar from Sarah. So the beauty of phone sex is it's 100% safe and discreet. And that you get this intimacy. I mean, look how much intimacy we have, the two of you and me talking. And then when people listen to this, they're going to have a degree of intimacy with me and the two of you. As podcast mistresses, Kristen, Mm -hmm. we're also working in that audio-only medium, and so we are really familiar with the intimacy factor that can come along with it, just, you know, in a much less sexy way. Oh, oh, totally. I mean, listen, if if folks are masturbating to Unladylike, we do not want to know, (laughs) do not tell us, but, like, listening to podcasts can be a super personal experience. Like, I mean, I imagine my favorite co-host being some of my friends— And to be honest, the appeal of phone sex really resonates with the appeal of podcasting. But of course, Caroline, there's also a lot that you and I just do not know about how phone sex work works. Yeah, exactly. Like, what does a phone sex operator like Sarah do? And how do they make their money? So today, we're dishing everything you wanted to know about commercial phone sex, but we're too embarrassed to ask or Google. Plus, Sarah busts some of our own sex work myths. 
And quick note, we're obviously going to be talking a lot about sex, but we'll also be getting into some heavier discussions around sexual trauma later in this episode. So just a heads up if you're sensitive to those topics. Phone sex is way more complex than saying, ooh and ah and do it, daddy. If you're really going to dedicate yourself to doing this, it is a craft. Sarah is crafty, y'all. See, her company, Pep, is not your average phone sex line. No. So Pep specializes in fetish play and BDSM, or bondage, dominance, sadism, and masochism. And they're all about providing a judgment-free space for callers, usually men, to explore their kinks in a healthy, consensual way. And Sarah Miles, that's her stage name, by the way, has a background in theater and writing and gets to flex her creative skills on every call she takes. So how would you describe then your particular skill set and repertoire that you have really honed over the years? Storytelling is is the thing that I am absolutely the best at. I saw a tweet by M. Night Shyamalan, and he was saying that he likes to work with stage actors because they know how to do things in one take, and they're fanatically committed and fanatically specific. And I looked at that, and I was like, oh, this is why I'm good at phone sex. And that's something that I was okay at 17 years ago starting in phone sex, but in having this much practice, have become incredibly skilled at being specific and touching upon that universal need to connect. But it wasn't phone sex specifically that attracted Sarah to sex work way back in the dial-up modem days. I had always been kind of nascently interested in doing sex work for the money, and I was kinky, and this was, you know, the year 2000, I had my first computer, and I kind of stumbled into my first sex work jobs in that I met somebody online who lived in another state who had done spanking fetish videos. And she was like, the person I worked with is just a few hours from you. I could connect you. So that was my entry into sex work. It was, we can make videos, we can do an in-person session, and you're going to make a lot of money, and you're going to get to do something that you're interested in doing anyway. Now, that person that Sarah was initially connected to was Kelly Payne, who's a professional dominatrix and fetish video producer. And y'all, the first time Sarah worked with Kelly, she made enough money to cover pretty much all of her rent and living expenses for the entire month. I felt great. I felt like I got to explore some of my own kinks and fetishes. I felt like I got to meet some amazing people. And all of a sudden, I had way less financial stress than I'd had 72 hours before. When Sarah was accepted to grad school, she wanted to continue with sex work and got connected with PEP. But it wasn't until after she graduated with her MFA and started looking for jobs as a creative writing professor that phone sex started to seem more promising than just a side gig. I was applying for these jobs that were like a 4-4, meaning you teach four classes per semester for shit money. And I'm looking at what I had done in phone sex and sex work, and I'm like, I'm not going to live like that. I'm going to keep doing sex work and phone sex. And look where I landed. Now I'm the CEO of this bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Which is badass, Caroline. Right? And so, of course, we wanted to know what the job of a phone sex operator really entails. So for a first-time caller, could you kind of walk us through what that process is like? I guess it's going to vary depending on, you know, what they want, but is there sort of a Mm -hmm. general way that it goes down? Absolutely. The way I always start 
is, Hi, Bob, this is Sarah. We're all set for our call. Tell me what prompted you to call me today. It's pretty open-ended. And so if it's a person who is gregarious and maybe has some practice in doing phone sex or the inverse, but it's the same result, has been dying to talk about this for 25 years and he finally gets his moment, they just flood open up. After about halfway through a call, if like a fantasy scenario hasn't been established yet, Sarah will kind of gently prompt the caller. Are you looking to play out a scene with me today? Would you like to hear me tell you a story? Is having an orgasm important to you today? And, you know, depending on the the timbre of the call, I'll ask one of those three questions and we'll make our plan for the rest. And then I I never know how to say this well to like people outside of the industry, but my job is to do what he wants. My job is to figure out what he wants and to remix it up into something even better than he could ever imagine. And when I have a new client who really is open and forthright and willing to tell me what he needs, and I get to give that back, and I get to give him the satisfying, safe, loving, really experience, there is no high like that high. I looked at your PEP profile, and you do have Ooh. some, like, examples of things that you talk about and, like, in scenarios mm-hmm. that you play out with some of your clients. For people who are maybe looking for, like, a scolding, maybe they're on the side of, like, sissification or emasculation, things like that, I'd like to know, like, A, kind of how do they even ask for that in the first place, and B... What would you then say to this person who's seeking sort of like a, I need to be shamed, I need to be scolded? If somebody wants to go in that direction, it's generally a humiliation call. In my purview, there are three avenues for humiliation if I'm speaking with a cisgendered, um, self-identified heterosexual man. I will say, do you want me to humiliate your penis size and your masculinity? Do you want me to humiliate you as a person or do you want me to humiliate your virility, your your identity as a man in the world? You know, if somebody is very direct with me, like, hi, Sarah, I love that you do have a humiliation. And I want you to tell me how worthless I am. I want you to humiliate me as a person. I want you to threaten to tell my wife that I call you. I'm like, cool, let's do it. And I will go hard and fast. Versus somebody who's like, um, I've never called before, but I'm into, I'm in, do you know what SPH is? And I'm like, yes, small penis humiliation. Tell me a little bit more. I mean, you see how much I changed there. Like I just shift so that I want them to feel safe. Like these are people who generally are not feeling safe about their sexuality and desires. And so I want to create the safest environment so that they can let all of that go. Has there ever been mm-hmm. a situation where you have just been like, fuck, I don't know what to say here. Or like you felt challenged or uncomfortable or just Mm -hmm. stumped? In my early days, if I didn't know where to go with something, I would go off track and I'd work too hard instead of what I learned over time as I put in my 10,000 hours, uh, like Malcolm Gladwell writes about, I learned to just (laughs) say, where would you like to go from here? Or I need to know a little bit more. I used to put all this pressure on myself to be brand new every time, to have new ideas every time. Then I was like, Sarah, you get off to the same stuff you've gotten off to for 25 years. These clients are no different. They actually just want to hear a lot of the same things. They want the comfort of that. And then, you know, every few calls, you've got to spice it up a little bit. Do you remember the first call you took? Yeah. 
He still calls me. Really? Really, he does. <laughs> he still calls me almost every month. Could you tell us about that first call and then like how that relationship has gone on? It's so not indicative of who I became as a person or a sex worker. But at 26 years old, starting in phone sex, I was this like sexy, cute, exotic girl next door kind of person. And that's, you know, how I kind of portrayed myself. And so my first call was with a person who actually is dominant. And I would play his submissive and he would talk to me for about an hour. And the very first call, I think he he wanted me to spank myself and put things inside me and, you know, have orgasms on command. And, and we did all that. And to this day, I do switch with him. I, I don't think that I would take a brand new client now who wanted me to be submissive all the time. But he knows that I've changed. I mean, we've talked for 17 and a half years. How how many like loyal longtime clients do you have? Most are. I mean, I talk to the same people if if not every week, every month or a couple times a year. I mean, when March comes, I know that a certain client's going to call for his birthday. He treats himself to one call a year for his birthday. I can this is this is uncanny, but so this morning I woke up, right? And I was like I haven't heard from ex-client in a bit. I bet he's going to call today. I'm not going to have time. He called at 8.07. I was like, God. If I wasn't talking to you all, he would have gotten his call today, just to be real. Oh, no. (laughs) no. (laughs) But I can almost unerringly predict within a day or two when my regular clients are going to call. And I still get new clients, which is so fun. Like it's every so often somebody brand new calls me and I get to go inside their psyche and play with them and do my show. When we come back, Sarah shares why some clients consider her more of a therapist than a phone sex operator. Plus, we're going to zoom out a bit to learn how phone sex work started and why it became so popular in the 80s and 90s. Oh, and we're dropping our new favorite scientific term, copulatory vocalizations. More on that (laughs) after the break. We're back. And Caroline, one of the biggest things that surprised us about phone sex work is that it's still a big business despite an internet just full of free porn. Full of it. Yeah, commercial phone sex, y'all, is still a billion-dollar industry. And in addition to the more boutique operations like PEP, there are around 10 major phone sex companies, including places like JetDoll, Network Telephone Services, and Nightflirt, that offer this mix of phone sex, sexting, and video calls. And for a lot of phone sex operators, or PSOs, the job provides a lot of perks that typical employers don't. Like if you need flexible hours or don't have a car and need to work from home. Maybe you can't afford childcare, or live with a disability. Ring, ring, hello? Phone sex does. Oh, and you don't age out of it. In fact, like Sarah, the longer you're in the business, the more of a loyal clientele you develop. That said, for most PSOs, it's not going to be a get-rich-quick scheme. Sarah says that in the late 90s, sure, you could make roughly 50 to 80K a year in today's money by working around 30 hours a week. But these days, that's going to be a lot tougher to pull off. 
most of the ladies who work for me don't do only phone sex. And, you know, the economy itself in this country has changed in a way where I, you know, 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, you could just do phone sex and that, you know, you could make enough money. But the the market changed. So in this day and age, I know very few people who do only one line of sex work. Most of us do a few things to make it all work together. And a handful of us, not not me anymore being the CEO of this company, but I did editing work until 2013 in order to make ends meet. But like I couldn't have stopped that until I became more ingrained in the business side of this business. So how did the business emerge to begin with? With a woman, Caroline, that's how. Fun, unladylike fact, there was this former stockbroker turned porn actress named Gloria Leonard, and she started publishing this porn mag called High Society, and she was the only female publisher in the porn industry at the time, and she started the first kind of proto-phone sex line in 1977. Yeah, so if you called up Gloria's 1-900 number, you'd get this recording of her basically previewing upcoming High Society content. But so many dudes started calling in, she ended up expanding it and adding spicier recordings and additional phone lines, and pretty soon, other publishers like Hustler followed High Society's lead. By the 80s, there were all sorts of X-rated 900 numbers, nicknamed dial porn or oral fantasy lines. And it wasn't just the whole novelty factor that was driving all of those calls. Right. The AIDS crisis was actually a really big reason why commercial phone sex first became a billion-dollar biz in the 80s. Companies capitalized on the public health panic by promoting it as a way to, you know, get your rocks off, quote-unquote, disease and rejection-free. But this was also during the hyper-conservative Reagan era, and Congress could really give a fuck about the whole 100% safe sex angle. In fact, they tried to ban commercial phone sex outright in the late 80s, but the Supreme Court ruled that that would be an unconstitutional free speech violation. Hell yeah, so phone sex lived on, obviously. But it's also important to note that not all phone sex companies are created equally. Like on one end of the spectrum, you have sex worker-friendly operations like PEP, you know, that takes a lot of care with hiring and training. And they pay a flat commission based on how much time a client books in advance. On the other end, though, you get scammier sites that charge callers by the minute and pay PSOs based on average call time, which means that if you get a jerk who calls and hangs up, like, that could actually cost you because it instantly tanks your average call time. And we know this because one phone sex company called Telepay USA just settled a collective action lawsuit for its, quote, pattern of intentional manipulation and exploitation— and underpaying its PSOs. Yeah, according to that lawsuit, even full-time phone sex operators were pulling in only like five or six bucks an hour. So, y'all, like any job promising fast cash, if it sounds too good to be true, do your homework and check them out before signing up to be a phone sex operator. But while the economics might vary, the erotic appeal of phone sex is actually grounded in science. Yes, it is. So uh, folks have pretty much always gotten off on women's phone voices. Seriously. Like, early operators got marriage proposals from men who literally just fell in love with their voices. And if we, you know, spice things up a bit, 
All of the kind of moaning and groaning that happens in the boudoir, well, primatologists call this copulatory vocalization. Mm. And they say that all of that, oh, oh, (laughs) is actually an innate part of, like, our primate sexual response. We're animals, Caroline. (laughs) And we know this because one study found that sexy auditory stimulation makes people's pupils dilate more than any other sexy stimuli. In other words, your voice can be an aphrodisiac. Oh, yes, it can. And Sarah says, though, for her clients, phone sex offers just an entirely different experience compared to getting off on, say, visual porn. You can do it anywhere. So if you live a life where you feel very trapped, you can go to your car, you can go sit in a quiet place, you can go into a room in your home. And you can do phone sex and you can have this simultaneously intimate and anonymous experience that makes you feel less alone, that doesn't put you in any way in the threat of bodily or even to some degree, you know, heavy emotional harm. You can hang up. That emotional harm piece is really important in Sarah's work because sometimes clients want to explore personal traumas, things like child abuse or sexual violence. What, one thing we do here at my company that I love is help people make that bridge between these are the things that happened to me, this is how my sexuality is informed by it, and I don't actually have to feel any which way about it. I can feel however I want to about it. Folks who would never reach out to a rape crisis counselor, folks who would never go speak to a therapist face-to-face are going to call a company like mine and say, this happened to me. And by the way, now I get off thinking about it because that's the part they're terrified to say, because if they have, they generally had a therapist who passed judgment and told them they were sick and dirty and wrong. And Caroline, something we learned from Sarah is that one way our brains can process trauma is through a coping mechanism called eroticization. Which basically means sometimes our traumas can become enmeshed in our deepest, darkest sexual fantasies. Trauma is an experience that the being cannot handle at the time of its occurrence, right? So just like disassociation is a defense mechanism, just like um, projection is a defense mechanism, so is eroticization. So a lot of folks deal with something terrifying that happened by making it erotic. Oppression is terrifying. Oppression is anxiety-producing. And so a lot of kink is an expression of anxiety about poverty, about gender, about gender identity and presentation, about all these ways that we're told to act as a culture. So when it comes to, like, oppression or trauma, does PEP have, like, best practices? When somebody tells you something that's really shocking... You don't say, I'm so sorry, or that must have been so hard. You say, how do you feel about that? A good follow-up question is, what else do you remember? So that we're really careful in our language to not pass judgment. But as Sarah says, calling a phone sex operator is not a substitute for professional therapy either. I have plenty of clients who go, Sarah, you just saved me seven years of therapy. I never like to call what we do therapy because I think that's really problematic. I think what we do is therapeutic in the same way that BDSM is not therapy, but it can be therapeutic. I'm here to provide taboo-free, authentic conversation. 
That's the end of the day of what I do. When we come back, Sarah shares exactly who is calling her and who isn't. Plus, she calls us out on some harmful sex work stereotypes we've perpetuated right here on Unladylike. Don't hang up now, y'all. That's all when we come back. We're back with phone sex CEO, Sarah Miles. So, Kristen, we've talked about what it's like being the phone sex operator. Now, it's time to find out who's calling. In terms of gender, you know, the majority of our clientele are cisgendered heterosexual men between the ages of 35 and 65. We have outliers in every direction. The majority of our clients are white, would tell you that they're Christian. The majority are college-educated and would consider themselves professional. And they are people who are sometimes very unhappy and looking to get happier. One of the things that I love that we do is we have so many success stories. I call them success stories of folks who called us and said, you know what? Talking with you helped me talk to my wife. Talking with you helped me relate better in this other area of my life. And there are going to be folks who never make that step. But I think that when somebody reaches out to have an authentic conversation at PEP, they're often looking to make another area of their life richer, be it personal or interpersonal, and safer. Yeah, it's mostly cishet men calling, but oftentimes they have a sexual interest or kink that feels taboo in the rest of their life. So many men who would tell you they are cisgendered and heterosexual will be interested in wearing panties or doing something that's typically considered feminine because we teach people as a culture that the only way that you are allowed to want adoring erotic attention is by being female. That if you're a guy, there's something wrong with you for wanting that. One thing that is coming to my mind as I'm hearing you talk about this, particularly since the demographic is largely cishet white men, is toxic masculinity, yeah. you know, and, and does it seem like that is sort of like an underlying driver of a lot of the, the angst and the pain that you hear? Mm-hmm. Toxic masculinity, we know, hurts everybody. It absolutely hurts everybody. By and large, the men that I talk to are just as affected by toxic masculinity and the perils of patriarchy as everybody else is. So, Sarah, this does make me curious. Do you get any women callers? We do, but rarely. Are there differences that you've noticed? I don't think I've ever talked to a, a woman caller alone. I've talked to couples, and I've worked with couples. But at this company, man, if a woman calls, whoever gets that that client, everyone else is jealous of. They're like, you got her. <laughs> Damn it. I wanted to get, you know, I want to have a woman caller. And in my in my knowledge base, I would never imagine that a woman caller would be more difficult or worse. I mean, unless it's somebody's wife calling to scream and call me a whore, which happens periodically. Why don't you think that you hear from more women? Mm-hmm. Basically, men are socialized in this culture to not only believe that they have the right to pleasure, but that they have the right to 
access pleasure. And they have the right to use financial means to access pleasure. Think about how young cis boys are taught, like, you can get a Playboy or watch the uh, watch the porn well, with the fuzzy screen, you know, back in the 80s and 90s. Whereas women are socialized in this culture, by and large, with the idea that you don't have a right to pleasure. You don't have a right to feel comfortable in your body. Basically, if you are in any way female-identified or non-binary, you are getting that messaging. Are there any particular myths or stereotypes about phone sex work or even just sex work in general that you would like to see busted? Yeah, a ton. You know, I, I... I want to say that when I spoke with your producer, I asked if you all had done stuff with sex work before, and she sent me a link to two episodes, and I only listened to the one with Noor Taguri, and it was very hard for me to listen to. Y'all, by the way, the unladylike episode Sarah's talking about is number 28, How to Report on Sex Work with Noor Taguri. This research seemed to largely be about sex trafficking and then diverted into being about in-person penis and vagina or penis and mouth, survival sex work. And the word trans, I never heard it. And transgender women, especially transgender women of color, have so few job opportunities. They have an unemployment rate that nears 40% that is you know, ridiculous compared to the rest of society, are so often forced to choose sex work. And that that entire conversation went on and didn't look at those complexities was really troublesome to me. And that that entire conversation included only the voice of a sex worker that that reporter had interviewed. So it was like a meta, you know, interview and interview. That was very upsetting to me. There is this myth that people can research sex work and talk about it meaningfully without any sex workers being around. And that is perhaps the most upsetting thing that I deal with as a sex worker. And I want to add to that, that I see conversations from academics and fancy people happening about what they term sex trafficking. And that is so disturbing because sex cannot be trafficked. What is trafficked is rape. People are trafficked to be raped. And I was again disturbed that we never heard in that episode the idea that these people were being raped who were trafficked. There are so many messed up ideas people have about sex work and that it, it it's all, you know, in one gloss and that we're all in one kind of pool doing the same stuff when our work is so varied and our work is so critical. So I'm glad to be here today and I hope that someone will hear this and never ever have a conversation about sex work without a sex worker present again. I really appreciate what you are saying and thank you for saying it and my heart's beating really fast i'm not a confrontational person so now i'm freaking out no no no. and and we are not we are not at all taking offense or, or anything and honestly i agree with you i think there is a lot of conflation with trafficking sex work as like big general sex work and then like sex work by choice versus the trafficking. I think that there's a lot of like in these conversations, there are unfortunately a lot of blurred lines and people who think they are helping mm-hmm. um, can yeah. sometimes make things worse. And also too, I mean, this episode is is part of 
an extension of conversations that we had around a lot of this with that episode of seeing like Mm -hmm. this broader world and wanting to pursue that in a in a stronger way i.e. specifically like going directly to the source so also thank you for still wanting to talk to us yeah thank you for receiving what I had to say and I and I will say too, like jumping off of that. So yes, we heard from a lot of people after that interview that we did with Noor, um, but we have actually very specifically heard from people uh, who are interested in phone sex or thinking about phone mm-hmm. sex or who have actually pursued phone sex work. And so yeah. on their behalf, um, I would like to ask you. Do you have any words of advice or encouragement, reassurance, anything for some of these folks who have written in being like, I'm considering doing this. I need the Mm -hmm. money. I'm not sure if it's exploitative or if it's empowering. What would you say to some of these folks? First, all labor under capitalism is exploitative. So if somebody's looking at doing a certain kind of labor – I would hope that that they would be able to say, is this going to be beneficial to me in more than one way? It has to be beneficial financially to survive in the system that we live in. Ideally, that labor is going to give you something else. Like you're either going to work with people you like, or you're going to do work that you feel is meaningful, or it's going to give you another kind of liberty. A big reason I stayed with phone sex initially was I like to write and I like to do community activism. And I was like, if I teach at a university doing a 4-4, first of all, the university has some say about what I do. Second of all, where is my energy to do all this other stuff I care about? You know, phone sex gives me a lot of liberty to move around the world the way that I want to. And that liberty Sarah enjoys didn't happen overnight. Remember, y'all, she's been doing phone sex for 17 years now. And like any other craft, it takes time to master. Or mistress. Indeed. So I think that people have this idea often, back to stereotypes, that it's this easy thing to do and easy thing to, well, it's easy to get into. You can go to Night Flirt and make a profile today. But it's very hard to maintain a career in phone sex or in any arena of the sex industry successfully. Just like it is very hard to maintain a solid career professionally in almost any industry that can allow you to live in an economically viable way under capitalism. I feel like there's this assumption that like, oh, well, we're in the 21st century. We don't need phone sex anymore. Like we've got Mm -hmm. porn or we've got cam girls. Mm -hmm. And I just want to ask, what is your take on the future of phone sex? I think we're going to have a huge renaissance. I think we're already seeing the beginning of it. In the last three, four years, I have seen an increase in the number of people calling us and the number of new callers coming to us. Camming is awesome if that's what you want. But sometimes people want to only be in their minds. And watching someone on cam forces you to be in a different kind of environment. Again, you can do phone sex anywhere. But I think, I think phone sex is going to see, just like bookstores did, just like magazines are, a little renaissance is coming. Kristen, I do feel, like, pretty excited about a phone sex renaissance. Like, the idea that we do have this sort of easily accessible, safe way to explore kink and on the other side actually get paid for it. Like, I... I think it sounds great. Well, yeah. I mean, and what I'm even more excited about is 
one that we heard from an actual sex worker in this episode giving her firsthand POV on the situation. Because the fact of the matter is, phone sex is not the only sex work that should be decriminalized. Mm -hmm. Like, sex work, period, needs to be decriminalized. And there is legislation that could make that happen. But until we start really humanizing sex workers and dignifying that work as work, Mm -hmm. which it is, which, I mean, I, I don't think that you can listen to Sarah describe what she does and the kinds of you know, the ways that she works with clients and minimize it in mm-hmm. any kind of way. So I'm just excited that we had this opportunity to get that look inside of inside of the issue. And I mean, who better who better to lead us on that journey than storyteller Sarah? Sure, yeah. Storyteller Sarah, also a phone sex company that is so sex worker-centered and sex work positive and ethical. Um, and so I just hope that after this episode, we hear from unladies out there who are also pursuing sex work as well, whether that's on the phone or in front of the cam, whatever, because let's talk about it more. And we want to hear from all of you about your questions, your thoughts, your experiences. So join the conversation in our private Unladylike Facebook group. Or if you want to make it even more private, you can email us at hello at unladylike.co or find us on all the socials at Unladylike Media. And make sure you check out our website for all of our sources and resources for our episode. You can also find our merch and sign up for our newsletter where you'll get actually good news about women in the world delivered to your inbox every Wednesday. And listen, through the the end of July 2019 with the code HOT50, you can get 50% off your merch at unladylike.co. Get yourself some swag. Get yourself some koozies and some pins. It's going to be great. And what a bargain. Such a bargain. Abigail Keel is the senior producer of Unladylike. Nora Ritchie is our associate producer. Gianna Palmer is our story editor. Ash Sanders transcribes our tape. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit May Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Mixing, sound design, and additional music is by Casey Holford. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Daisy Rosario. Special thanks to Megan Kamerick. We are your hosts, Caroline Irvin and Kristen Conger. Next week, it's our turn to jump on the line. Hi, Natasha. Thanks so much for calling on Ladylike. Hi, how are you guys? Craig, hello. Thank you for calling on Ladylike. Hi. Hey, Megan. Hello. Hi. 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 And just to be clear, this is not a phone sex line, but we did try out a little experiment here at Unladylike headquarters, and we opened up the lines to whoever wanted to call in. We heard from a ton of unladies, and it was honestly so lovely to talk to y'all live on the line. So to hear that episode and dig into our feed, make sure you're subscribed to Unladylike in Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And remember, got a problem? Get Unladylike. Welcome to Unladylike. Welcome to Unladylike. 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 Titties, 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 titties